Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Kong. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee. I was born in Mumbai. Yeah. I was born in Vientiane. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Here bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Sarah Aronpe describes herself as a child of the revolution. She grew up during the Iranian Revolution. Her family fled to the United States, hoping for greater freedom, but they instead found themselves again at the center of conflict when the protests of summer 2020 threatened their family livelihood. Majelin has Sarah's story. I was standing with two half-empty bottles of wine because I thought if I have to protect my family, and we don't have weapons, that I was going to stand with those, hoping I don't have to use them. Watching things unfold, watching people go into that Target, throwing things out of the second floor and cars that would come around, they would steal things, watching them break into the, uh, the jewelry store right around the corner and just walking out with thousands of dollars worth of things. And I just stood there with those empty bottles and kept on telling my parents, we need to go. You guys have to go because our lives aren't worth our sticking around here. This was the summer of 2020. Black Lives Matter protesters, white supremacist groups, anti-fascists, and law enforcement clashed nightly in downtown Portland. On this night, Sarah stood in front of her family's restaurant, surrounded by looters and rioters who had just destroyed their business. It was a devastating yet ironic moment in her life. Sarah was born into protest in Iran in 1978 at the start of the Islamic Revolution. At first, her family chose to stay in Iran. I had an amazing childhood. I mean, I remember a lot of great things. I remember the beauty. Um, Living in Tehran, there's big, huge, beautiful trees. The fact that we get all four seasons, I remember a true full fall, and I remember a real winter and a real summer. My grandfather worked two jobs to be able to keep food on the table, worked really hard to be able to buy a house, a small house. My mother's side of the family was was wealthy. They were, they were rich. They lived uptown of Tehran, and um, when my father met my mother, their house was an entire block. They were the first on the block to get a TV and, you know, that family that has the first to get everything, you know. They used to travel to Europe and they had nice cars. So definitely when you consider wealth and class level, they were quite a bit different. We were a very tight-knit family. We all lived within just a short distance of each other. So we were constantly together. As a child, I remember you didn't know where the lunch or dinner table started and where it ended. There was never a table long enough for all of us. So we would always sit on the floor and there would be this beautiful kind of tapestry that would start on one side and end way on the other. And just an endless amount of food. You'd sit down and eat next to your cousins and you had multiple parents because you had aunts and uncles and they would all be a part of it. So really the idea that it takes a village, I experienced that as a child growing up. Sarah's father was a mechanical engineer, and he worked hard to take care of the family. He kind of went in between jobs of helping out my grandfather. My grandfather owned a factory, a paper factory, 
And so because of that, he would travel a lot. He would go to Germany and, and other European countries. He is such a nationalist and he loves Iran so much. And that's what he saw in the Shah. We were born with very Persian names. My name was Sharare and my sister's name was Shohre. And my father, when we were around six months old, we were identical twins. He came home and told my mother, he said, the Shah's uncle had had twins and he had named the twins Sarah and Mona. And he told my mother, he said, we had to change their names. And my mother said, well, no, they've had these names for six months. They're very traditional and they're Persian, but he was very insistent. And so they changed their names to Sarah and Mona. I wish we had the traditional names as our middle name, but that's how our names came about. So Sarah and Mona. In 1980, the Iran-Iraq war began after Iraqi President Saddam Hussein led an invasion into Iran. Sarah was only two years old. The sirens would go off, often again, because we were such a close-knit family. We would usually be at my grandparents' house, and they had a bunker. And my grandmother would scurry the kids quickly, and we would all go down into the bunker. She would always have meals prepared, and she would feed us. And she had this great thing. She'd feed you with her hands, and it just was... The food tastes so much more delicious. And I remember so just clearly, I one day asked her, I said, why do you feed us every time we're down here? And with a very serious face, she said, well, do you want to die hungry? And I thought, you know, as a child, no, I don't want to die hungry. But now as an adult, I look back, she was just keeping us busy. So we didn't think about the fact that there was bombs going off and there was people being killed. And it was a pretty serious thing for a child to have to think about and deal with. I also remember in times we were at our own house and we didn't have a bunker, my father would take us out and he would show it like it was fireworks because he didn't want us to be scared. Look, you see that light up there? You know, it's like a shooting star. And at that time, of course, he knew the severity of it, but he didn't want us to really take on something that heavy. Sarah's father was involved with the Shah's secret police. After the monarchy crumbled, Iran had become an Islamic republic with Ayatollah Khomeini as their supreme leader. Her father's affiliation with the Shah put the whole family at risk. They stayed for seven years, but the situation got more dangerous for anyone associated with the Shah's regime. It was really sudden. My father got word that someone that he used to work with had gotten captured and had gotten tortured for names. And he had heard through the grapevine that one of the names that was given was his. So it was a sense of urgency, and it was not an easy conversation for him to have with my mother that we're, we're going to move, and it has to be done in a quick fashion. And I don't have a lot of memories of my childhood, but that's one of the things I remember like it was yesterday, because I remembered we had just bought a brand new apartment and moved in there. We were excited to have this great apartment. It was more further uptown, closer to my grandparents. And it was our own place. We left everything in the apartment, took just valuables, some clothes, just, you know, took some luggage. And because my father had traveled a lot to Germany, that was his first thought, was that we just need to get out of here, get to Germany, and get there as soon as possible or safely. The airport looked like what would be like a war zone, you know? It wasn't like a normal airport that you would go to. And some of the rules and laws and regulations was you couldn't take anything valuable with you outside of the country. Also, if you were on any sort of a watch, you couldn't leave the country. Sarah's parents did what they could to smuggle any valuables they had. They even hid jewelry in tubes of toothpaste. 
And then he unsewed, because they wouldn't check kids those days, little kids. So he took my jacket and my sister's jacket. He opened up all the seams and he put in there all of our valuables, money and jewelry and, you know, gold coins, whatever we had that was valuable, he put into those jackets. And so that all happened in like 24 to 48 hours. And at the airport, it was a very serious scene, but it was very hard for us. I remember when we were leaving, you know, we're in an airport, it's incredibly hot, you're a child. So we just kept on fidgeting. Our coats weighed like 500 pounds. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but they were so heavy. And for a seven-year-old, it was hard not to fidget. So I remember just fidgeting and fidgeting and fidgeting. And my mother got down on her knees and she got just face to face with us. And she said, if you continue on moving, we will not make it out of here alive. I just did this big swallow and held my sister's hand and we just stood there and we didn't move. Because even though we were seven years old, we understood the severity of the situation. We first went to Germany. The plan was to stay in Germany because my father had been there so often and had stayed there that he knew, you know, his way around the country. He knew some of the, of the language. But being in Iran all the, the years he was, he had a nickname. They would call him Muhammad America because his dream was always to move to America. One day he passes by the American embassy and he says, what the hell? It's going to go in. So he goes in there and he speaks to this ambassador. He had our passports on him. And he fills out the paperwork. Those days, it wasn't as complicated. And they happened to give him a visitor's visa, a tourist visa. And he came home and he told my mother, we're moving to America. We come through customs in New York with 15 suitcases. So, I mean, if that wasn't a giveaway right there, like, we're here to visit with 15 suitcases. And so um, the gentleman that was there when we went through customs asked my father a question. My father's English, he knew English, but it was a little touchy. And he said to him, are you planning to stay as a resident? My father thought he said, do you love the president? He said, yes, yes. He said, you plan to stay as a resident? And he said, yes. And he said, okay, you need to go sit over there with your family. My father couldn't understand, like, why is he mad? I told him I love his president. <laughs> so they sat us down in a corner and this gentleman called us back, which is like the head of that department and started asking my father all these questions. And when he'd asked the questions, my mother would say to him in Farsi, what is he asking? And my father would translate. In the translation, he would also say, I'm going to say this to him because he understood how he made the mistake and why we were there. So after that whole conversation ended, my father gets up to leave. The gentleman who was American starts speaking in fluent Farsi. And he told my father, he said, you're a very smart man and you're going to be very successful in this country. There were not many Iranians living in Portland in the 1980s, but Sarah's father had a cousin there, so that's where they decided to move. They put us in first grade, but I was very blown away by how inviting the environment was, very accepting, very inviting. So, you know, really, me and my sister just advanced quickly in, in learning English. But that changed very quickly. Gresham at that time was a very racist area in Portland. And as kids got older, 
just a few years after that, it became a very intolerable place to live. And we would often get bullied in school for being different, for being Middle Eastern. I was in fifth grade, and I remember a kid that was bullying me and my sister a lot. And I was just getting fed up. And one day he walked up to me and he said, you're Saddam Hussein's mistress, which I think right now was very advanced of a fifth grader. <laughs> and I got so mad. And I said, you know what? Go learn your geography. Saddam Hussein was in Iraq. I'm Iranian. And I remember I got so mad, I pushed him. He fell to the floor. And my father had just bought us these um, cowboy boots. They had metal in the front. They were like very in style those days. And I got so mad, I just kept on kicking him in his arm over and over and over again. Ended up breaking his arm. He had to get a cast. So they called us into the office and they sat us down. They asked us what happened. And so I explained that. They kept us in the office. They called my parents and they called his parents. And I remember sitting there and his father walked in and they explained to his father what had happened. And they said that we have a zero tolerance policy for any sort of racism. And this is clear racism, which, you know, was a lot those days that they had a zero tolerance policy. And we're talking way back, you know, in the 80s. And they said, because of that, we're going to have to suspend your son. And I remember the father turned back and said, we're American. You're throwing my son out of this school. You should throw these sand niggers out of this school. And I was just, I couldn't believe it. I was floored. And I remember leaving the office that day and my father said, you shouldn't be angry. You should feel sorry for this poor little kid who's being raised in that environment. And now as an adult and as a parent looking back, he was right because that he was a product of his environment. Because no fifth grader would really have an understanding to hate unless he was taught that at home. As Sarah was finishing elementary school, her father opened Market Plaza one of the city's first Persian restaurants. He had always been interested in food and wanted to introduce Portlanders to dishes from his home country. People who lived in Portland, the first exposure they got to ethnic food was his restaurant. And one of the other reasons why he would kind of pull in the crowd is that there was other things on the menu. So sometimes a person would come in the first time and have a fettuccine, but next time they'd go, oh, what's a chicken kebab? Well, I like chicken. I'll try their chicken kebab. And slowly, it would be an introduction to Persian food and ethnic food for them. We have this dish that has pomegranate juice in it. I'd say 90% of our customers had no clue what a pomegranate was. I mean, and it's funny because just in this last few years, we have customers that come in and say, oh, do you know that pomegranates have the highest antioxidants? I'm like, yes, we do. We've been eating it for 2,500 years. So it's really fascinating to me how it's changed. When Sarah and her twin sister, Mona, were 13 years old, they went back to Iran to visit their grandparents for the summer. But when they landed in Tehran, they were immediately recognized as being the daughters of their father, a wanted man. Instantly in the airport, I knew something was wrong. We got off there. Those days, they didn't have computers. So literally, the gentleman standing there, when you give him your passport, would like lick his thumb and would go through paperwork. I saw everyone else in front of me go through. 
But then I saw him leave and go speak to someone else, someone bearded, very serious looking. And instantly I knew there was something wrong. And they went out and approached my family members. And we then found out that my father was blacklisted. He didn't know that. He thought he was just gonna send us to Iran for the summer. And they saw an opportunity if they captured us or kept us there to get my father back in Iran. So they politically detained both me and my sister back there. They took our passport and we didn't know exactly what was gonna happen next. They did take us in, interrogated us and asked us questions. But the plus side was my father had never said anything to us. We didn't know anything. And when I asked his questions, you know, being 13, my first response when they said, I said, I'm 13, I don't even like my dad. And I don't think the interrogator knew what else to ask after that. But he slowly realized we didn't know anything. I mean, to me, my father was a mechanical engineer. I didn't know anything beyond that. So they decided to keep us there. They allowed us to live with my grandparents. And we thought it was a very temporary situation. We lived there for a year and we were very careful in that year. My father made it very clear to us, careful what we talk about on the phone, careful where we go and you know, not to go alone and always go with family. Don't ever open the door, you know, unless you have family members standing next to you. So a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety in that year. A gentleman came to my grandparents' door and said, we've decided they can go back. We'll meet you at the airport. We'll give them their passports. We say very, very tearful goodbyes. We'd been there for a year. We'd gone to an international school. We had friends, gotten very attached to family. Very tearful goodbye at the airport. And then someone else showed up and said, they changed their mind. They never gave us our passport. So Sarah and her sister returned again to their grandparents' home in Tehran. Though they got along well and had made friends at school, it was not an easy adjustment for the Americanized teens. It was fighting the system 24-7. Well, we fought two systems. One of the systems we fought is two very religious, very religious Muslim grandparents. Their kids, they had six kids, weren't even allowed to go to the movie theater. And here they get two American teenagers. Their last child had just moved out of the house. So to put it mildly, I'm not making this up, but my poor grandfather, he had three heart attacks in the five years we were in Iran. And I'm sure we caused, if not all three, but at least two of them. You know, uh, having American kids was very, very difficult on them. It, we didn't have their views and we were very sneaky and wanted to get out and wanting to go, you know, party and be with our friends. And they had very strong views. You could only hang out with women or girls. You couldn't hang out with boys. The positive side is we changed their views. Even though at that time, at the age they were at, and they had kids who had moved out of the house, I remember walking by my grandparents' bedroom and my grandfather telling my grandmother, what's wrong with these kids? They keep on hugging you and kissing you and why are they so affectionate? Well, I grew up with a father that was very affectionate. And my grandfather was a very serious Middle Eastern man. He had never hugged his kids. He had never kissed his kids. And I remember being there probably the third year I was there. My aunt one day came up to me with tears in her eyes and she said, I want to thank you. And I said, thank me for what? She said, I got hugged by my father for the first time today. So we rubbed off on each other. Winning over their strict grandparents was easy compared to the tyranny of Iran's religious police. The sisters would often sneak out to meet friends and go to parties. There was a lot of very serious incidences that would happen at these parties. If they would get raided, you could end up in multiple places. You could end up dead. You could end up in jail. 
they could end up taking you in and they'd whip you quite hard. That it would take a month for you to recover. So it was very risky what we were doing. We got very good at it, very good at escaping. But I remember a time where we just made a wrong turn. We thought we had ran quite well away from the religious police and we made a wrong turn. And they caught up to us. And I remember his gun right behind my back. I remember it on my spine. And I just thought to myself, I don't have very many options at this point. There were times that we knew of people who would get raped by them. If you got caught by them, you didn't know what could happen. So it was one of those times where I said, well, I have to save myself. So I remember turning around in an instant, grabbing this, this religious police shirt and kneeing him in his crotch. And as he fell to the floor, I just ran. Sarah made a narrow escape that night by knocking on a stranger's door and begging them to hide her. She had many brushes with danger, including the night her friend was murdered by being thrown off the 18th floor of a building. We were at his birthday, and he lived in a very tall kind of apartment complex building, and they raided the party. And he, you know, stepped in front of everyone because they were being very obnoxious and very lewd with the ladies that were there. And so he stepped in front and he said, hey, it's my birthday, my responsibility. You know, please don't bother my guests. Let's go talk about this. Some of these religious pleats you could pay off. And he was pretty wealthy. His family was. And we all were standing outside and, you know, hoping that he'd be able to pay them off. That was his plan. But things unfortunately escalated and got out of control. And we could hear screams in there. And as we broke into the door, we saw a few of the religious police that were there um, that threw him off the 18th floor. And not only that was traumatizing, if you walk down to about the 13th floor, you could see the scratch marks of his hands trying to hold on as they had thrown him off. They didn't allow his family to have a funeral for him. We were told that if we went to anything to celebrate his life, that we would all be arrested and would be taken in. And his parents never even got to properly mourn him. And so he lost his life to something so insignificant. And so there were incidences like that, that you just can't forget, stay with you forever. Sarah finished high school in Tehran while her father worked tirelessly from the U.S. to find a way to get them out of Iran. At 18 years old, the sisters were finally allowed to leave the country after their dad reached out to the Shah's family. Sarah enrolled at Portland Community College and went to work in the family restaurant. There was just a lot of mental struggles going on. And I would say in the first year or two, it was almost like I was begging to, you know, be thrown out of college. And I remember at PSU, they said, well, you should go talk to a counselor. I had one hour session and I talked and talked and talked. And after that hour, like there was this silence. And the therapist just looked at me and said, and you've never had therapy? And I said, no. Sarah continued attending therapy for 10 years to process all that she had been through. 
a lot of things came out I never thought of that till, still to this day affects me. Still to this day, little things like opening a door in the dark to go in my house. And I get a lot of just anxiety over it. I remember being at the Rose Festival on a Ferris wheel and fireworks went off. And I remember having a complete panic attack because it took me back to the time of the war. While Sarah and Mona were in Iran, their parents had closed their first restaurant and opened up a new one called Persian House. At first, their parents had to sleep on the floor of the restaurant because they could not afford anything more. It was a cozier place lined with Persian rugs and Iranian history books. Her dad became the main chef, and the new menu focused much more on Persian cuisine. That was his passion, is Persian food. And he learned to also tweak certain recipes a bit because most of his customers were Americans. And there is like certain sauces we make that he learned over the years that maybe was a little too sweet for American palates. So he would tone down the sweetness and add in a little like lemon juice. So still traditional meal, but tweaked a little bit. So it's more works out for the customer base that he has. A lot of our American customers were very into those more fascinating meals. I'd say our most popular dishes, like one was, um, it's called fesenjan. So it's a breast of marinated chicken. It's like marinated in, in turmeric and saffron and yogurt and has a pomegranate juice and a crushed walnut sauce. Just hands down our number one meal. I mean, if you think about the different flavors and the tartness of the pomegranate that mixes in with the yogurt and the saffron and that fluffy saffron rice, I mean, customers would just love it. People who never liked lamb and never liked eggplant, it would be the first place that my mom would say to them. My mom has a very, from her side of the family, they're kind of pushy with food, like try it, you'll like it. And when someone come in and say, I don't like eggplant, she wouldn't even charge them. She'd go and bring our most famous eggplant appetizer and it's this like really just melt in your mouth eggplant and has a pomegranate syrup and caramelized onions and garlic and mint. And they would instantly become eggplant fans. And she would always say, you don't like it because you haven't had it done right. It, we were a very popular restaurant in Portland and it was packed like every night. We would work there for sure every weekends. And then if they had a lot of reservations on the weekdays, often me and my sister, I'd say 99% of the job we worked two, of the time we worked two jobs. We both worked in Nordstrom. We'd go at 8 a.m. to Nordstrom. We worked until five. We'd walk up from the Nordstrom downtown a few blocks up to the restaurant and we worked till midnight. And I didn't know life if in any other way. My father, because everyone was so kind, at the end of the night, he would serve food out of his back door and all the homeless people knew he would serve food out of that back door. And they would come there. That went back to what he was taught from his father. His father would do the same thing when he was young. So he kind of wanted to pay it forward like he did. And he's passed that down to us too. So I think that 
That's one of the reasons why when he opened the restaurant, he was like, I, w- I want to be able to do something where I feel good about the food I'm making. In 2020, Persian House took a huge economic hit with the pandemic. We completely closed. We thought it was just going to be a few weeks. And it was the first time my parents have ever gotten a break like that. I mean, it was very odd to them to be closed for, those t- for that time. Because my parents now are older and, and it was, you know, scary. So we decided that they were going to close just for a while. And then my dad started doing to-go food, but it wasn't going well. Not just for us, for our neighbors as well. People weren't coming. They were scared. Things got even worse in late May after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. Riots broke out in Portland, just blocks away from Persian House. Sarah's family was at home, watching it all unfold on TV. We were watching the news, just sitting, sitting and seeing the riots unfold downtown that first night. We never really thought about the restaurant. Of course, we knew we were downtown. But it all started, you know, right around 4th Avenue. We were all the way up between 10th and 11th. And as we watched it unfold, we just saw them inching closer and closer and closer. And once they hit that target, which is right kitty corner to my parents' restaurant, I told my dad, I'm like, Dad, you need to check your cameras. And once we checked the cameras, they were offline. We knew we were in trouble. Me and my mother got in the car first and headed downtown. We parked at the side of the restaurant. I walked around that corner and my heart sunk. The place was demolished. It was just demolished. And there were still people in there raiding the restaurant. And I just saw the look on my mom's face. I mean, to something you put blood and sweat and tears into. To see it ruined in one night, it's beyond heartbreaking. They broke the entire huge window in front of the restaurant. There was glass everywhere. We went in there and it was, it was a mess. My dad went in the kitchen and he wanted like the last picture of his, of his parents that was in the kitchen. And a few other things that were personal items that meant something to them. The floors were all scratched up because there was glass everywhere. Um, like I said, food, alcohol, that kind of stuff stolen. And there was some stuff in the back that got taken, computers that were taken, laptops, you name it, cameras, so many things. I stood in front of that restaurant because, again, I'd spoken to the police. They talked about reports of people with guns, and and it was a madhouse. Sarah stood outside in shock with the two wine bottles in her hands, urging her parents to leave for safety. They had put so much effort into escaping Iran, and yet here they were again living in the middle of protest, violence, and polarization in this new country. I look over at my dad, and he's locking the door to the restaurant. And I looked at him, and I said, Dad, and I got really close to him, and I said, Dad, I said, why are you locking the door? This whole restaurant's exposed. And I looked down, I see his hands shaking, and he looked over at me, and he said, I've locked this door for 30 years. It was difficult to see him. It was like his baby. And a feeling in, the, in my gut knew that was the end. It really knew that was the end. And then the next day, to see the Portland community come out and lift my parents up and support them and saying, give me a room. I'm going to 
help you with this glass that's out here. Give me this. What can I do? Random people, strangers we didn't even know came out to help. And then one of our customers started to go fund me for them. And people would write the most beautiful things. And we'd get the most incredible phone calls and not just people from Portland, but elderly lady who called from Seattle. And she cried. She left a voicemail and she kept on saying, this is not my country. My country accepts everybody. My country is a melting pot. And she went on and on. I still have this voicemail. I will listen to it to the day I die because it's so amazing. She said, I am not wealthy and I don't have money to donate to you, but I want to let you know my prayers are with you. I want to let you know that whoever did this, they're the very few and we love you and so many calls like that. Sarah's family was overwhelmed by the outpouring of community support. But between the pandemic and the vandalism, they had to close the restaurant for good in spring of 2021. Theirs was just one of many businesses impacted by the pandemic and the riots. At least 20 businesses in downtown Portland alone closed their doors by the end of 2020, and another 170 shut down temporarily. I was raised in downtown, and looking at it now with all the windows boarded up and how not clean it is. And it was so clean. We'd have customers that would come every year and visit Portland and would just rave about how nice everyone is, how safe downtown feels. I just feel saddened. There's been a lot of losses. And I do feel like there is the right way to fight for things and there's the wrong way to fight for things. I'm all for supporting, you know, hey, we need to make sure that injustices don't happen. But if you're fighting for injustices not happening and you're coming to a family-owned and operated restaurant, even put aside that the fact that they're immigrants, and you're ruining property and ruining lives, that is not a proper form of protest. I don't think that people should be hurt. People's property and livelihoods shouldn't be hurt. I think that we should be heard, and I think we've made some great advances in this last year, but we should really focus on our city. I feel like we have a community that can come together and change it. I really do. I think we shed light on a lot of important things in this last year. I think that was necessary. I also think that we really need to put our focus right now on reviving downtown because it was such a beautiful downtown and we've had a lot of losses. It's a beautiful city and we need to make it that way again. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story. This episode was produced by Mae Jalin with audio editing by Rick March and assisted by Greg Palmer. The original interview was conducted by our executive producer, the steadfast Sankaraman. Thank you to St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Beaverton, Oregon for their use of this space for recording. This episode is a part of a series exploring the stories and experiences of Asian Americans in a climate of anti-Asian rhetoric and increasing violence. It is produced as part of the Oregon Rises Above Hate Coalition and made possible by a generous contribution from Anne Nato Campbell. To learn more, please visit OregonRisesAboveHate.com. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.